Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by Eminence, Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, protecting yourself from illness this holiday season, ways to increase the state's moose population, a Minnesotan reflects on the annual Army-Navy football game, but first. Nurses at 15 hospitals in the Twin Cities and Duluth Superior this week ratified new three-year contracts. Union leaders say by an overwhelming margin. Eminence Bill Werner is here with a report. Tasha, the rank and file approving those contracts probably was not a surprise because union leaders recommended a yes vote on the tentative agreements that they inked just five days short of a planned three-week strike. Nurses at the Twin Cities hospitals, represented by the Minnesota Nurses Association, will get an 18% raise over three years. In Duluth Superior, it will be 17% plus other benefits. But the nurses contend measures to address staffing shortages are even more important, and they say patients are the winners. Kelly Honest, nurse at Abbott Northwestern in Minneapolis. These are our working conditions, yes, but they are the places you go to for help, to heal, to give birth, to die with dignity. Union President Mary Turner said, For nine months, our executives sat across the table from us and insisted there was no way they would negotiate with us on staffing. No way the nurses were going to run the hospitals. The nurses say there's no quick fix for staffing shortages, but they say now they have the tools. Turner says, for example, where she works at North Memorial. We got a letter of understanding that at any time, any floor that's having an issue can call for a meeting, bring along nurses from that floor to meet with our nursing leadership. Hospital officials declined requests for interviews, instead issuing statements. The Twin Cities Hospitals Group says they are pleased nurses ratified new contracts and believe the agreements, quote, are fair and meet the needs of our nurses, hospitals, and patients. Duluth-based Essentia Health said, quote, we're grateful to reach an agreement that ensures our nurses will continue to provide the expert, compassionate care that our patients expect and deserve. Now that the nurses have new contracts with major hospitals in the Twin Cities and Duluth Superior, union leaders say their next job is to head to the state capitol next month to lobby against the proposed merger of Sanford Health with Fairview Health Services. Minnesota Nurses Association Executive Director Rose Roach. Nurses will continue to fight with every fiber of our being against having a South Dakota company come in here and take over as the largest health care provider in the state of Minnesota. It will not improve patient care, it will not improve quality, and we will see prices skyrocket, and in addition to, we will likely see closures. We're not going to stand for that. In late November, Governor Tim Walz expressed openness to the proposed merger, telling the Star Tribune that Sanford's new CEO and the relationship with his office is 100% different than it used to be, and communication between his administration and Sanford, he says, has been transparent and candid. But fellow Democrat, Attorney General Keith Ellison, appears to have reservations, promising a series of hearings early next year. The issue of health care access and quality of care is something that I'm very concerned about, and I want to hear what other people think about it. We either need some very powerful assurances or 
you know, it's going to be a, a big concern. Also this week, an important step forward, said Senator Amy Klobuchar, as she attended White House signing of the Respect for Marriage Act, which puts protections for same-sex and interracial marriages into federal law. And President Biden praised Senator Tammy Baldwin from neighboring Wisconsin, the first openly gay member of the U.S. Senate. This bipartisan vote simply would not have happened without the leadership and persistence of a real hero, Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin. But Minnesota 1st District Republican Congressman Brad Finstead voted against that bill. There was a lack of clarity when it came to religious freedom. For instance, nonprofits or uh, private schools, uh, private religious schools, whether it's Lutheran, Catholic, you, you name it, there wasn't enough protections there for them to really practice their religious freedoms. So for me, it, uh, it became infringing on that. The bill requires that states respect same-sex marriages legally entered into in other states. Duluth Mayor Emily Larson announced this week she is running for a third term, saying this is an incredibly hard and important time. Larson says Duluth's biggest challenge is, as she puts it, social connections that have dissipated since the pandemic. The fact that people uh, really miss each other, how people are engaging with the community, what that looks like, and that's inclusive of you know, how it feels to be a business owner and to watch your business walk away because people aren't working downtown anymore. Larson announced her re-election bid in front of supporters on a newly rebuilt section of Duluth's Lakewalk. She is currently unopposed. In 2015, Larson was the first woman elected as Duluth's mayor. Student leaders this week asked Steve Swigum to immediately resign from the University of Minnesota Board of Regents, prompted by his question about two months ago. Is it possible that at Morris we've become too diverse. Is it possible all from a marketing standpoint? Swigum publicly apologized and stepped down as vice chairman of the Board of Regents, saying he wanted to encourage discussion about enrollment struggles and had more to learn about the strength that diversity brings to the U of M. But student leaders said this week what others shared about Swigum's subsequent visit to the Morris campus, quote, make it clear that your apology was meaningless and that Swigum's continued presence on the Board of Regents, quote, will signal a hostile attitude toward diversity and deter prospective students from choosing the U of M. Swigum has declined to comment. And this week, investigators asked state regulators to order CenturyLink to submit plans to resolve what they say is a pattern of service deficiencies, including excessively long outages, and to better maintain its network in the future. Greg Doyle with the State Commerce Department says for many Minnesotans, a landline is the only way to communicate in emergencies or keep in touch with family and with medical services. People being without service for a week is not uncommon at all. More commonly, the rural areas are the ones that have the the most trouble. Um, They're the ones with the outages that last the longest. Doyle says they have not been successful in negotiating an agreement to resolve some of the problems. Try to work with the company on doing some things that uh, you would think are, are pretty straightforward. Including, he says, proactive maintenance, such as repairing damaged pedestal junction boxes that let in water and later fail. A spokesman for CenturyLink says the company won't comment on specifics of the proceedings, but is, quote, reviewing the allegations and will continue to work with all of the parties involved. The spokesman adds, quote, we are committed to work towards what customers want as we transition from a copper to fiber-based network while continuing to provide voice service to our customers. Tasha? Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters right after this. 
It's Thursday night and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Start it off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed, could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. State health officials worry holiday gatherings could fuel another rise in respiratory virus. Minnesota Department of Health Commissioner Jan Malcolm. I just want once again to acknowledge that the last three years have been a tremendous challenge to our state, to our nation, to the whole world, um, and certainly to all of us in Minnesota who have been impacted by COVID in so many different ways. Um, and I just want to acknowledge, too, that three years is a really long time to, to sustain the level of vigilance um, and precautions that we have asked Minnesotans to participate in. And, I, and we're very aware, and I certainly am, that, that there's a lot of fatigue out there um, with, with uh, COVID information, um, and there's a great desire and an understandable one uh, to think of COVID as something in the past, but it is most certainly still with us. And it's important that people um, understand both the risks that do remain and the, and the very important tools that we have now available to, to manage these risks. Um, you know, fatigue is, is understandable, but it's also dangerous. So we, we thought it would be important to take this opportunity to just share with Minnesotans uh, some of the latest that we know. Um, I just am, am, will always be just incredibly grateful for the truly heroic efforts of so many people in public health and healthcare, education, public safety, community-based organizations, so many other groups in so many ways over the last three years who've given so much. And those efforts really, truly have helped Minnesota to navigate this pandemic, um, certainly not perfectly, but we have a lot to be proud of together. I think um, as time goes on and the data continue to become more clear, I think um, it will become more and more clear that Minnesota has navigated this pandemic better than many other states and prevented, we will never know how much um, illness and death um, and again, I think the data, um, as, it, as it emerges over the coming years, will, will show um, the importance of everything that we have done together as a state. But right now, our goal is to help, uh, help our state get to a new normal that includes you know, more of the things that we have been missing um, and to minimize the disruptions associated with illnesses like COVID-19 but also one in which we really take seriously and apply the lessons from the very difficult experiences we've shared over the past 33 months now. To me, one of the things that that means is being more aware of the role of our individual personal decisions in larger things like how well our communities work and how well our healthcare systems can work. 
And these are decisions about whether or not to stay home when we are sick, whether or not to get vaccinated, whether to cover our coughs, wash our hands, get that annual checkup, get that nagging health issue better under control. We've always thought about those as very personal health decisions, and they are, but their impacts absolutely add up for all of us. When enough people make the choices that protect their own health and the health of others, we end up placing less stress on our healthcare system and our healthcare workers and on our schools and on our businesses. When we take, um, take into consideration that our personal decisions impact the whole community, we also make it less likely that the next pandemic that comes along will have the same kinds of devastating impacts that this one has had and frankly continues to have on many people. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A new federal grant will be used to further large-scale moose restoration in northeastern Minnesota. DNR Wildlife Section Manager Kelly Straka joins Eminem's Brent Palm to talk about the efforts to find more space for the moose population. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. Well, I understand Minnesota is getting a federal grant to further large-scale moose habitat restoration in northeastern Minnesota. Fill us in a little bit on this grant. It's very exciting, honestly, and I'm, I'm honored to be able to, to talk to you a little bit about it today. So this grant was actually awarded from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation through something called the America the Beautiful Challenge. We received as a state over $400,000 grant to really help with our, our moose habitat planning efforts uh, with the goal of focusing on moose habitat projects that will restore what moose need to survive and thrive on different areas that are large scale efforts. So we're looking at that 10,000 to 50,000 contiguous acres of habitat restoration initiative. So it's a pretty exciting grant. Wow. It says northeastern Minnesota. Can you give us a, a little more specific? Yeah, so the areas are really going to be focusing, again, on the northeastern part of the state. Um, there's going to be three areas that are being targeted. And so most of it's going to be really trying to identify where we can focus efforts with partners, because in order to find, you know, large tracts of land like that, that moose really need for that landscape scale effort, it's going to involve multiple partners. And so again, it's going to be focusing across the areas of the Northland, Northeastern Minnesota, where we really can have that kind of partnership support from different landowners, different entities that might be overseeing some of the land there. Tell me a little bit about maybe those partners and how you folks can work together. The nice thing is, you know, focusing on moose habitat, moose are so important, so iconic for a number of reasons. They're, they're crucial to the ecosystem. They're crucial for tribal heritage. All Minnesotans across the state really do get engaged and care about moose. And so when we start talking to our partners, the Forest Service, the, the different tribes that are across northeastern Minnesota, this is so important to everybody. And so, so far, we've gotten a lot of support. I think we had a number of different partners that signed on letters of support, including tribal entities and the, and the Forest Service. So as a layperson, are we maybe trying to open up areas to moose where they were not before? Yeah, that, this is what's really exciting for me to talk about. When we start talking about moose habitat projects, it really is looking at the habitat on a broad scale and seeing, hey, can this really support moose all aspects of what moose need for their life cycle, right? They love new vegetation, young trees, especially young deciduous trees. They love those types of environment because it's really good nutrition for them. That provides really good browse for them to eat. At the same time, we need some of those older forests that can provide thermal cover, protection from predators. So really looking at the landscape and saying, okay, can this support 
various stages of moose life cycles and their needs. This is something we saw following the large, I think it was a 90,000 acre Pagami Creek fire that was not by any means an intentional activity, but that amount of disturbance on the landscape we saw, and this was pretty well publicized a few years ago, moose coming back into those areas and utilizing that new habitat that, again, provided for some young forests to provide great browse for them, while at the same time, they had some of those older forests that were adjacent to that fire that they could still rely on for cover during different times of year. So when we start talking about what they really need in lay terms, it's we want to be able to provide everything they need throughout their life cycles in order to thrive. The last time uh, my family came across some moose was a few summers ago, and we were actually just off the Gunflint Trail near, I believe it was East Bearskin Lake, driving up and down some gravel roads, and had basically given up, turned back around as we were leaving to get back on the Gunflint Trail, ran across a moose and two babies, and they were chewing on treetops, like you said, vegetation. <laughs> and, and like this summer, I heard from a lot of folks who saw moose either in the Boundary Waters canoe area along the Gunfin Trail somewhere up there. So it makes me think we still definitely have some moose up there. We sure do. We absolutely do have moose up there. We've got moose. Now we talked quite a bit about over the years that moose have been in a long-term, what we call a long-term population decline. And we think that, you know, we started really picking up on that around 2006 or so. Um, we do work really well with, with tribal partners in particular to do aerial surveys for moose. So we actually fly these transects across the Northland looking and counting moose. Now, the most recent survey showed that those numbers based on those counts might actually be showing some signs of stabilizing, which is good, which is good. We don't want to continue to see these decline, but I'm also really hesitant when you just have, you know, a couple of years of, of data, you really want to see trends over time. So again, even though we do have this long-term population decline, more recent figures suggest that numbers may be stabilizing, which is great. I hope that trend continues in the future. Hey, Kelly, from what I understand, as part of this grant, um, we're going to have some uh, workshops up there to discuss, apparently, you know, uh, the large-scale moose habitat restoration. Um, tell us a little bit about what might happen at those workshops. Yeah, that's really exciting part of this grant. And so this grant is really a, a, a planning grant to a, a enable us to do some of this work in the first place. And so there are five workshops that are being proposed. Each workshop over the life of the grant is going to have a slightly different focus. Um, we'll also be hiring this starting in this summer, starting summer of 2023, we'll be hiring a, pro a project manager that'll really oversee this project and be able to make sure that we can be as um, as as careful with these funds as we can and make sure that we can move these things forward. Well, DNR Wildlife Section Manager Kelly Strzok, uh, if folks maybe want to learn more about these efforts or moose in Minnesota, where can they go to, to find some? We do have a webpage that's specific for moose management. If you just go on the DNR's uh, webpage, you can even search moose. You can also search for moose survey, and you can get those aerial survey reports and have an idea of the population trends over time for anyone who's interested. Well, thanks for joining us today, Kelly, and we will definitely bug you next year when uh, these meetings get underway and we start making some progress. Oh, I hope so. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Brent. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Quitting smoking or vaping can be difficult, and it can be even harder during times like these when stress is often higher. Finding healthy ways to manage that stress without nicotine is important. For Minnesota residents who are ready to quit smoking, vaping, or using smokeless tobacco, 
Quit Partner is ready to help. Through a family of free programs, Quit Partner offers free support like one-on-one coaching, emails and texts, educational materials, and quit medications like patches, gum, and lozenges delivered by mail. In fact, a mix of quit coaching and quit medications can help double a person's chances of quitting. No matter what support a person would like to try through Quit Partner, it's always judgment-free. And now that Minnesota has raised the legal sales age for tobacco to 21, residents may be looking for quitting resources now more than ever. To learn more, visit quitpartnermn.com or call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. The annual Army-Navy football game is one of the most-watched college games of the year. The 2022 contest was played last weekend in Philadelphia, and a Minnesota veteran was able to attend the game and take in special events. John Creasel served in the U.S. Army National Guard from 1998 through 2008. He suffered near-fatal injuries in an IUD explosion while serving in Iraq in 2006. He lost both of his legs. Creasel survived and went on to become a Minnesota state lawmaker, a book author, a motivational speaker, and a radio host. Through his radio duties, he was able to take in last week's matchup, which was the 123rd game between the two service academies. Eminent Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Creasel and asked him about the experience. It's tough to find words, really, to describe what it meant. It was amazing. It was always on my bucket list, and the fact that I got to go and help cover it for a, a Twin Cities radio station was just um, it made it even more special because of the extra access you get getting to interview the the commandant of the Naval Academy and the superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. All of those things that lead up to it, just it, it gives you a little more knowledge of the game than I would have had just watching TV. And then specifically the pregame stuff, watching the players warm up, but starting with the invocation, standing, you know, standing in the, uh, on the sideline outside of the end zone, the invocation there, the national anthem. I've never been at a sporting event where it was quieter during the national anthem than that moment. And then the flyovers, uh, the ominous beating of the drums before the, the army team came out of the tunnel, very warlike marching into battle. So all of the things, just kind of a big analogy for, war and you see these kids and being on the field now i'm 41 i feel like i just got out of the army but i've been out for 13 14 years seeing these kids how young they are and the fact that once they graduate they're gonna have a very serious very important difficult and at times dangerous job it it, it was the whole thing it was just awesome so i hope i get to go again next year yeah was it did it uh, exceed what you thought i mean that game is so important for so many people um and you mentioned it was a bucket list thing uh your expectations heading into the weekend and then um how much did it deliver in terms of just what the weekend was like yeah it definitely surpassed any expectations i ever could have had and the people that uh, that i spoke with that had been there talked it up a lot so it's really tough you know we've all been through that where someone really took build something up and you go and you're like, oh, okay, that was awesome. But not ever, everyone, I think, overplayed it. This was definitely not one of those things. Just awesome. And the fact that the game itself, you know, we're all used to the NFL game, the 40 points in some of the games and a lot of passing, running out of the shotgun, high, high-powered high offenses. 
This is not that. This is discipline in the trenches football. Very throwback. And then this game was the first time, and this was the 123rd Army-Navy game, this was the first time it went to overtime. It actually went to double overtime. And to be there, that was the sideline we were standing right by, was the front pylon of that end zone that all of that was taking place in. I just could not believe it. And then being there when then, in walk-off fashion, Army kicks the game-winning field goal to, to win the game, seeing everyone rush the field and the cadets piling out of the stands, security st- trying to stop people for about 30 seconds and then giving up, uh, walking through the crowd to get to the tunnel to get out of the stadium. I had to walk across the field and walking through the cadets, and you see them patting their classmates on the back, congratulating them on a good game. You see just the raw emotion. And I've been on Viking sidelines. I've been on sidelines of sporting events. And you see raw emotion. But at that level, it's kind of a business. This is totally different. Seeing all of that was just something I don't think I will ever forget as long as I live. So you're an Army guy. Army wins it in overtime. You talked about the emotion. Um, one of the things that I thought was cool in following you on social media is you explained in a video uh, the Army uniform was a special one this year. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it was uh, to commemorate the 80th anniversary of Operation Torch, which is when the Allied Force, specifically the United States military, began operations against Axis forces in the European theater. Uh, they entered in parts of Africa, and then started working their way up. And so it honored the 1st Armored Division and everything with that and the fact that that happened 80 80 years ago. Just amazing hearing the stories behind it, how how military leadership from the United States met with, you know, Churchill and and everybody just kind of planning like, all right, this is go time now. We're going to get this going. And that's when it all started. So just seeing that, not to mention... Just amazing. Those uniforms were so sharp, did a great job paying homage. And then on the on the Navy side, it was a astronaut-themed uniform to commemorate the fact that 54 graduates from the U.S. Naval Academy have went on to become astronauts, which is the most of any uh, institution. So all of it just awesome. Seeing the heckling before the game, the people marching off the field, the Army cadets marching off the field in their formation. And you see you know, how young they are, and they're trying to keep their military bearing. And then there's people from the Naval Academy heckling them as they're going through the tunnel, trying to get them to break their military bearing and look up. And when they someone had accidentally look up, they'd be like, oh, we got one. We got. Where it's, <laughs> it's giving them hack, but in a lighthearted fashion. And the fact that once that game is over, once both academies sing their song, these people are on the same team, fighting under the same flag for the same mission. So all of it, every freedom-loving American should attend that event sometime. Just awesome. The festivities around it. And then the game itself was fantastic this time. Yeah, amazing, no doubt. Well, John, tell us what you're up to now. I know you have uh, your book is out, and you're still selling that. You're doing motivational speeches, and there's ways that people can get in touch with you that way. Give us info on what you're up to and how people can get in touch and get the book. Sure. So uh, my book and my speaking engagements can be uh, handled through my website, johncreasel.com, and that's K-R-I-E-S-E-L. Uh, I travel around the country, uh, upper Midwest as well, uh, providing inspiration for people. I try and give businesses and organizations perspective on what I went through in losing my legs in Iraq, but the lessons I've learned from it, how an attitude is absolutely essential in every aspect of life for getting over adversity. Uh, so that's johncreasel.com. They could book me there. Uh, my book is available, like I said, through the website or amazon.com or your local bookstore. Very good. So cool. I'm glad you got to experience it and hopefully you can go back next year. 
I'm looking forward to hopefully going again. All right, very good. Thanks, John. Thanks, Grimmer. That's John Creasel with MN Sports Director Mike Grimm talking about his experience at last week's big Army Navy football game in Philadelphia. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MN affiliate station. Same time, same place. I hope you have a great week. Stay well.